Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. We know that making the necessary changes to mitigate the climate crisis will take massive collective action, but sometimes individuals can make an extraordinary difference. In this episode, we'll hear from two people who stood up to very powerful entrenched interests and won. It's really remarkable to see within a few years how many court cases all over the world sparked off and were inspired by our case. That's Marianne Manesma, who spearheaded a groundbreaking legal victory holding the Dutch government accountable for its failure to protect its citizens from climate disruption. We'll hear my conversation with Marianne later in this episode. But first, we'll hear my conversation with Nayeli Kobo, co-founder of People Not Posos, which translates to People Not Oil Wells, and describes itself as a grassroots campaign dedicated to the prioritization of people over corporate profits. Nayeli grew up in Los Angeles, which has the dubious distinction of having the largest urban oil field in the nation. And she successfully led an effort to shut down the oil well that took a devastating toll on both her and her community. She won the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize for her work when she was just 20 years old. And this was for work that started when she was nine. I didn't realize what I was up against. <laughs> I just thought I was fighting grown-ups. I did not understand that I was fighting big oil. Her efforts didn't just get that one local well shut down. They led to the phase-down of oil extraction in all of Los Angeles, the most populated county in the country. She really is inspiring and has a remarkable story. We started the conversation with her personal journey. At the age of nine, I started getting really sick out of nowhere, and I was always a healthy girl, so that was a cause for concern. It all started with a nosebleed, and the first nosebleed, we didn't think much. You know, I probably didn't drink enough water that day. It was probably too hot outside. But the nosebleed came back three times that week. And every time they came back, it was more and more intense. It got to the point where the nosebleeds got so intense I couldn't sleep in my own bed anymore. I would have to sleep in a chair to prevent choking on my own blood. I developed asthma. That's something I'm always going to have to live with now. I had heart palpitations and I had to use a heart monitor for several weeks. I got body spasms that were so intense I couldn't walk. My mom would have to carry me from one place to the other. Unfortunately, the list goes on and on and it was... It wasn't just me. My mom developed asthma at 40, which is really rare. And my grandma developed it at 70, which is unheard of. It was a common conversation starter for our parents to stop each other in the streets and say, my son is in the hospital from an asthma attack. How's your daughter's asthma? Or my son is in the ER. Can you help me pick up my other kids from school? And that's not normal. It shouldn't be normal. 
sounds like, though, that you were obviously not alone in experiencing this, though maybe your case, your symptoms were more severe than some other people. How did you connect the the health symptoms that you just described with the oil well in your neighborhood? So when drilling for oil, there are a lot of toxic emissions that are released into the air, and it typically smells like rotten eggs, which is really gross. Something the oil well in my community did was add even more chemicals to mask the smell. So then my community would smell of guava, chocolate, cherry, citrus, and the smell was constant. It was a smell that as soon as you took a breath and inhaled, you were sick to your stomach. And the smell became more and more common. Out of nowhere, this smell started occurring. We originally thought that something was wrong within the building that we were living in, you know, a leak, plumbing issues or some sort. And we started contacting the executive director of the organization that owns the affordable housing building. And we started calling them and they said, no, I assure you the building is okay. It's most likely the oil well across the street. And we said, the what? And it was up to us to become the experts and start learning what was going on in our community. So we started calling the South Coast Air Quality Management District and filing complaints. And then it was, we were very fortunate to have Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, PSRLA, send a toxicologist to come speak to my community. And that's when we officially connected the dots and said, oh, this chemical used during oil extraction causes X, Y, and Z symptoms. And that's what we're experiencing. So you didn't know there was an oil well that close to your house? I didn't. Did your parents know? Did your family know? The well wasn't operating because oil prices were low before. But then with the spike in 2010, 2009, they started resuming operations. But they didn't alert the surrounding community that they restarted operations. Okay, so it had been dormant maybe when you were even younger, and then they restarted the activity. Wow. Okay. So you've mentioned, you know, that you or your mom began to draw attention to this, try to get some awareness. And frankly, oil companies can be kind of intimidating. And I'm kind of curious where you and your mom got the momentum and the courage to challenge them. It's funny because the night I found out that we were living next to an oil well, um, my mom had said, oh, the smell that's been going on is from an oil well. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I was like, wait, what's an oil well? Actually, that does not make sense. <laughs> and um, I had to learn what an oil well was at the age of nine. And the night we found out, the next morning, oh my God, I'm crying just thinking about it. The next morning, my mom and I crossed the street and we started reading every single sign that was on that oil well wall. And the sign that has stuck with me the most is the sign that says dangerous chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer, birth defects, and reproductive harm. And I'm aware that's Prop 65 and it's everywhere. But this isn't on the wrapper of a candy bag that I just got. This isn't on a label for the new laptop. You know, this is on an oil well wall 30 feet from people's homes. This oil well operates with nine surrounding schools in the area. And when I started my work, I never thought, I think it was also because I was so young, I didn't realize what I was up against. <laughs> I just thought I was fighting grownups. And for me, it was, I can challenge a few grownups, but I did not understand that I was fighting big oil 
a multi-billion dollar corporation. And I think it helped a lot not to know that at the age of nine. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, yeah, ignorance is bliss in a sense. The well in your neighborhood was actually on land owned and leased to the oil company by the archdiocese, and you attended Catholic school uh, in your younger years. So what was it like for you to speak out against that, given maybe whatever cultural pressure or just sort of school environment you were in as a Catholic school student? It was very interesting. I remember during recess playing kickball or anything, smell would travel to my school and teachers would start saying, oh, I have a headache or what's that smell? And that was my cue to give them the full rundown. I was like, I got you guys. Don't you worry. I was like, the smell is coming from an oil well two blocks from school. They produce 60 to 80 barrels of crude oil a day. And I'd go on my spiel. It got to the point where the principal pulled me aside and was like, you cannot speak against the archdiocese on land that is owned by the archdiocese. She was like, you go to a Catholic school. She was like, you're essentially speaking against the school's boss. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm still going to talk about this. And I was I was in the principal's office pretty often growing up because it was, how could I not talk about this just because I went to a Catholic school? And it's because of the beliefs and morals that my Catholic school has instilled in me that I feel like it is my job to call them out on being hypocrites. And something I always I always point out is just because it's on land leased by the archdiocese, it does not make them holy omissions. And it is unfortunately another way that the church is abusing children. Mm, That's pretty powerful. So one of your main tools as an activist is telling your story, your personal story. What other tactics have you tried in the last decade and more and what works and what doesn't? I've tried a lot. I've done a lot of door-to-door knocking, phone banking, text banking, city hall hearings, town hall meetings, organizing a rally, organizing strikes, organizing rallies and all sorts. And I think there's a special energy when it comes to, to taking the streets. It's that, oh my God, I smile just thinking about it because it's, oh my God, and I'm crying now. Wow. It's powerful beyond words. It's that feeling when you're at a strike and you're bumping shoulders with a stranger and you're like, oh, I like your sign. And they're like, I like your sign. And then you switch signs for a bit and you find community amongst people you would never talk to in your day-to-day life crossing the street. We're so focused on what we have to do that we forget to look up from our phones and socialize with each other as humans. When you take the streets, you really show that community. You show the people power. You show the love that we have as humans for our planet, for our communities, for change. And it's that very unique type of energy where it's it's palpable and it reignites your fire in your belly for, for activism, for change. And I think that's extremely important because activism can be very taxing. It can affect your mental health. There's so many things and it's important to recharge. It's important to remember why you're fighting. It's important to take a break and, and say, you know what, I'm, I've done a lot for the past three weeks. I need a day to myself. We need to be breathing to put on somebody else's oxygen mask on the plane, you know, and that's something I've never understood 
when I was growing up, I was like, how do you think I'm going to put mine on before I'm going to put on my mom's? And it's important to set up boundaries and to take breaks. Something I think of is when Jane Fonda says, this isn't a, a sprint, this is a relay race, it's a marathon, and it's you need to pace yourself at times. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about two women who challenged power and won. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device, and it helps people find our pod. We also have a new website where you can create playlists and share them with friends. Any topic you want, agriculture, psychology, politics, technology, you can do it on our new website. Coming up, how a community dealing with the devastating effects of oil emissions made its voice heard. It's really powerful to know that. A community that was viewed as invisible, as disposable, created historical change. That's up next. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part, we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Activism is necessary to bring attention to many issues, but we often forget about the toll it takes on the activists themselves. Yeah, that's right. It takes time and resources to participate, and doing that can actually prevent people from being able to lead so-called normal lives. Let's get back to my conversation with Nayeli Kobo. She shares her experience being a kid and an activist. I feel like a big one for me was just growing up. It was really hard to be able to, to find the balance between being an activist and being a normal kid. It was difficult to be in high school and have all my friends go to this really cool event, this really cool party, this really cool dance, and I couldn't go. And while I was fully aware of the decisions I was making, and I would weigh the options as if, okay, what will serve my community better, going to this conference or going to this dance? And I would always choose the conference. But it is difficult when I remember this really cute guy asked me to his prom and I said yes and a week later I got an opportunity to go to a conference and I said I'm so sorry I will help you find another date (laughs) and it's those those decisions that I know that will serve me in the long run but it's hard in the moment as well. You know in asking that question I expected you to tell me about a, a particular media event or you know a oil company challenge to to your activism or something. And to hear you give such a personal example of just being like a high school student who wants to balance, wants to have a, a life, like you're saying, a normal life and go to prom and having to sort of sacrifice some of those experiences in favor of your activism is, is really powerful. You fought for years to get media attention. And then an LA Times article caught the attention of Senator Barbara Boxer, and she then got EPA inspectors to conduct an investigation. So tell us about that experience and what you were able to accomplish. It was very surreal. It was powerful to know that a senator was coming to my community and was going to fight with us against big oil. And I remember the day that they 
the EPA investigators and Senator Barbara Boxer came to my community, the EPA officials went inside of the oil well to conduct an investigation. Within five minutes of being inside of the well, they had to evacuate because they got sick. Wow. Was it leaking or was it just a highly emitting well? Do you know? It's been both. There have been times where the oil well would have leaks. And in one time, the week was a week long and no one in my community was evacuated. We were living there, breathing in these crazy emissions. But at that time, it was just they weren't up to regulation and complying with certain orders <laughs> within the oil well. Yes. And the article that captured the attention of Senator Barbara Boxer before that, it was us advocating for four years before we captured attention. So it felt like we were screaming to a wall, screaming in silence for four years before someone heard us. And what happened when she got involved? What did that do to change it? So she had a press conference in front of my apartment building and she plead out Alan Go the oil well to cease operations. And I'm very proud to say shortly thereafter, the oil well temporarily closed, which was, that was in November of 2013. And the day that we got the call that they closed, we were having a family dinner because my sister was getting married the next day. We we're having a great time just being with, with family. And my mom got a call and she excused herself and she started crying. Being the nosy kid I am, I started poking her and I was like, what's wrong? Who was calling? Like, why are you crying? And she hung up the phone and she told me, they're closing. And I had so much energy and joy and I didn't know what to do. I asked for permission to scream. <laughs> and I was like, mom, can I scream? And she was like, yeah. And I started screaming and I ran to the window and I opened it which is something we weren't able to do in our very own homes for years in fear of letting in more emissions. I closed it after like 20 or 30 seconds because it was November and if it's under 70 degrees, it's too cold. <laughs> um, but it was the fact that now I could open that window. Wow. Hmm. Well, that's one success. And then in 2020, the LA City Council voted to phase out drilling in the city over a 20-year period. So. I would imagine that this is another success in your mind, but give us your perspective on that time frame, that 20-year window. So much can happen in 20 years. In my personal experience, when I was first started getting sick, I was nine. And at the age of 19, a 10-year span, I was diagnosed with cancer, stage two reproductive cancer, as a matter of fact. And this is a historical change. It's amazing and phenomenal. And I know that because because of that, no future 19-year-old will have to choose between her reproductive system or her life the way I did. No, because of that, no future 9-year-old will become an activist out of survival the way I did. But 20 years is a long time. And we've seen what 10 years can do. So why would we want to allow this to continue for another 10 years, 20 years. We need to start shutting them down today. As a matter of fact, we need to start shutting them down yesterday. Lives are on the line. 
In the state of California, there are over 4 million Californians living a mile or less to an active or idle oil and gas well. That's 4 million. And I know that's a ridiculously large number, unfortunately, but think of one person. You know, think of your mom, think of your grandma, your niece, your nephew, because these are human lives. Oftentimes we get distracted by the big number or the dots on the map. And we forget that every dot represents a human. And for me, I felt like at the age of nine, someone could look at me in the eyes and say, you don't deserve to breathe clean air. But what they didn't know was that I was a nine-year-old who was, probably still is, obsessed with Justin Bieber. That I love dance, that I love music, that I love eating, that I love hanging out with family. That makes me who I am. And I'm not the speck on the dot that deserves to be poisoned in her own home. Well, the well that was in your community was the first in the nation to be permanently shut down. You told us a little about the reaction you guys had when you first heard that news. How has your community changed since then? Whenever I hear that we're the first one to shut down, it just sparks tears all the time. Um, It's really powerful to know that. A community that was viewed as invisible, as disposable, created historical change. You know, we said enough is enough. We are not invisible. We are humans and we deserve to live a sustainable life. We deserve to live without being in fear of what we're breathing in. We definitely have a sense of power. (laughs) we know what we are capable of and what is possible. And that's, that's what also inspired Standalay to be born when we realized that we were not the only community being affected by oil extraction. But like you mentioned, Los Angeles is the largest urban oil field in the nation. So if we saw what was made possible in our community that inspired us to start fighting for our surrounding communities like ours. So how do you see the relationship between individual action and societal change? We all have a big part to play when it comes to reversing the climate crisis, and our individual actions play a huge role. I think of it as when people say, my vote doesn't count, and then 30 people start screaming, your vote counts, what do you mean? (laughs) It's exactly that. It's your everyday actions. You're choosing to use a reusable water bottle makes a difference. You're choosing to eat a plant-based meal makes a difference. Our individual day-to-day actions carry a huge impact on our planet. And by implementing things into our day-to-day lives, by changing things, by investing in other products, it makes a huge difference on our planet. And individual activism and societal activism go hand-in-hand but they also feel very different as well. And I find that interesting because sometimes when we start posting that we're doing said changes, sometimes society doesn't react well to it. Mm. And it's difficult. And sometimes it's, ooh, what's the word? I can think of it in Spanish. You can say it in Spanish. I can. Desanimado. Like you, like... Well, uninspiring or? Yeah, you feel uninspired to create, continue with that change because 
nobody else picked up on it. No, you can feel uninspired when you're the only one doing it and you've been the only one doing it for so long. And that's why sometimes activism can be so taxing because sometimes it is isolating as well when you're the only one who feels like you care about said issue. And sometimes you just have to push through that because you know why you're fighting. You know why you started and you know why you will continue to fight. But it it is difficult sometimes. Mm. You earlier talked about, you know, balancing kind of your own childhood and life with your activism. And um, you had mentioned elsewhere that you occasionally do clothing swaps with friends. And this is like a really fun thing. I've done these myself. They are really fun. Uh, And we did an episode recently on Climate One about how happiness can be part of climate action. So how does that idea resonate with you that these actions personally that you can take don't necessarily have to be what some might consider sacrifices, right? They can actually be fun things that bring us joy. Yeah, activism can be very fun and it should be fun. It's not always this negative thing that's taxing and well it it can be taxing but it's not only taxing and it's not only isolating it brings so much joy it brings community it brings change and it should be fun you know finding ways to implement activism or to implement sustainability into your day-to-day life doesn't always have to be boring it doesn't have to be eating a plate of green beans with something you know like it's fun. It can be very healthy and it can be, I don't know why I thought of green beans, but I don't (laughs) like green beans. Maybe that's why. Um, But doing clothing swaps, um, buying a matching reusable water bottle with your besties, having a tote bag painting night, you know, there's options and it's fun. And I think it is very important to find ways to make your activism fun and to implement something that makes it joyous for you. You've had a real success in L.A. in terms of um, your activism and others contributing to this ban and phasing out of oil drilling. But oil companies around the world and in the U.S. continue to drill. And I'm curious what is next for you, whether you continue to whether you plan to continue this activism you know, in your 20s and 30s and beyond, or if you need a break, if you're thinking of doing a different, you know, a a change of career, maybe change of a career that you started when you were nine. (laughs) Um, As long as I am able, I will use my voice to fight for, for justice. It's hard to walk away from something when you've lived it. It's something that because I know how horrible it is to not be able to open the windows in your home because I know how intense the nosebleeds get because I have those lived experiences and honestly trauma in a way, I can't stop fighting. And sometimes that's that's what we need is to always to have that persistence to continue fighting, but also to know when to set up a boundary and to say, I need a break. And I really learned that when I was diagnosed with cancer because it was, I could not fathom the idea that I could not work. I could not wrap my head around the fact that I wasn't going to be able to go to that strike or to show up to the meeting. And 
it's funny to say, but cancer taught me a lot. And it taught me to know when to set up those boundaries and that it doesn't make me less of an activist because I said no. You know, but that makes me stronger. That makes me, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing, but it is it is important to to have the balance. Nayeli Kobo is winner of the 2022 Goldman Environmental Prize. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us on Climate One. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's hear my conversation with Marianne Menesma, founder of the Netherlands-based Urgenda Foundation. Marianne also won the Goldman Environmental Prize for her groundbreaking legal victory, holding the Dutch government accountable for its failure to protect its citizens from climate disruption. The Netherlands is often considered an environmentally friendly country, with windmills dotting farmland, tulips, and the popularity of bicycles. But that doesn't paint the whole picture. We have the image of ourselves that we are quite green and we recycle a lot of paper and glass and so on. And we have a bike or we have two or three bikes. Um, but we have the largest gas hub of Europe. We have two very big harbors. Rotterdam Harbor is an enormous big oil-oriented harbor. And therefore, we have a lot of chemical industry over there. And Amsterdam has the largest coal harbor of the this part of Europe. Therefore, we have used a lot of fossil fuels and we have built a lot of economics on it. We have become rich by using it, but we have also emitted a lot of CO2 and other fossil fuel uh, gases. Um, so we did not really do well on climate. A third of the Netherlands is below sea level. How do you compare the climate impacts on the Netherlands with island nations that we hear so much about? Yeah, one third of the Netherlands is below sea level. Half of it will have a serious problem if we would not have all the dikes and so on. I think we are relatively good and we are known for that in the world of by building dikes and, and complete new water systems. And therefore, we are relatively safe, much safer than a lot of small island states. But also the Netherlands will have a serious problem if we go on with emitting CO2 and we will have a temperature rise of 2 to 3 degrees, which we're still heading for. Then we will also have a serious problem uh, in time, not the next 20 or 30 years, but maybe at the end of the century, surely halfway next century. Um, and you can't keep building dikes for uh, five, six, seven meters at a certain point of time. So we... Uh, better make sure that we stop emitting uh, greenhouse gases. You studied law and attended the first Conference of Parties, or COP, under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. When you were there, were you scared? Were you angry? And how did your feelings change over the years and later as you became a parent from that very first COP? Yeah, I studied uh, in the 90s. Um, and I graduated on the Climate Change Convention that was from 1992. And I think the first official COP, COP1, was in Berlin, I think, around 1995. And at that time, I was uh, somewhere in my 20s, having a lot of fun. And I thought, <laughs> yo, we have a problem and we are going to solve it. It was not really something that you thought about as um, emotional or you were not very angry or very scared. It was more... Uh, a problem that we could solve and I was there and I spoke to a lot of people I thought it was very interesting we had great parties afterwards so it was completely different from what evolved over the years and I've worked for 10 years in universities 
with the best climate change professors in the world. And you could see that the best people were the most worried ones. And that already made me worry. And then at the beginning of this century, I had three children. And then you suddenly realize they might live until 2100. And then it starts to become much more serious and emotional and so on. So it has changed me over time uh, from a problem that I thought uh, we're going to solve and something that you only thought about with your brain and not with your heart or with your emotions. And afterwards, it changed a lot. And if you know too much, which I do, <laughs> then you get much, much more worried. And I think we really have to do a lot this century to make it, uh, keep it a liv livable planet. Yeah, and that's also my journey from the head to the heart, from intellectual to something that's in the heart and in the gut. In 2013, your organization, Urgenda, filed a lawsuit against the government of the Netherlands demanding a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2020. Even many of your friends said the odds of winning were slim at best. So you developed a tactic called crowd pleading. What did that entail? Yeah, of course, people at that time knew the concept of crowdfunding, that you would ask people around you, please help me, I have, want to start a new activity or a new company, and you, you don't get mm -hmm. the money from the bank, so you try to get it from people around you. And in this case, I thought, uh, we want to start a court case that nobody believes in. Let's see if there are any people in the world that know of any court case that could be helpful. And let's see if we can go to court with as many people as possible, so co-plaintiffs. So we invited people, help us and join us. And we called that crowd pleading. Uh, and in the end, almost 1,000 people joined us as co-plaintiffs. And they were with us all the almost eight years that we were in the different courts that we had to go to. And they went every step along the way. And that was very special because every time we had to show up in court for our story, there were hundreds of people behind me sitting there looking at the judges. And I think that makes it a different case than... Uh, if you are in a court with case with only a few lawyers from the one and from the other and and nobody else. Quite powerful, just the optics and power dynamics there. It's, it's what sounds like in the, America would be called a class action lawsuit, perhaps. Then in 2019, the Dutch Supreme Court ruled that the government had a legal obligation to protect its citizens from climate change. And it required the country cut emissions by 25 percent below 1990 levels by the end of 2020. Not quite what you asked for. Still pretty ambitious. How much had already been done and how easy was this at that moment? Well, our first ask was 40 percent, but the lowest level that we asked was 25 percent. And the judge said, well, maybe 40 is necessary, but that's up to politics. But the lowest level is something that I guard because it's so important and you have a duty of care as a government to protect your citizens. So you have to do the 25 percent. And when we won, there were still 16 and a half megatons to be done. Uh, and to give you a comparison, if we make 100,000 houses energy neutral, this is only 0 0.2 megaton. So if you have to do 16 and a half, it's quite a lot. On the other hand, if you would close down Tata Steel, it would be 12 and a half megaton. So then you would be <laughs> very far already. But mm. we knew that the government would not be prepared to close down such a large factory. And we thought... Will the Supreme Court let us win if they have the idea that it's impossible what they demand from the government? So we made a plan, which we called the 54 Solutions Plan, together with 800 different organizations, which all adopted one or more of those solutions. And we offered it to the government. We said, look, this is a plan. You can still do 
uh, more than 17 uh, megaton if you want to within one year if you carry out this plan and we are prepared with all the 800 organizations to help you so we are not in this uh, courtroom for a fight we want to help because we know that it's necessary to do this and that it's very difficult to do it within one year but it is still possible you mentioned duty of care as as the kind of the legal basis for this case uh, what is a duty of care and where does it come from? Well, in the Dutch law, you have something that um, says, well, as a government, you have to take care of your citizens. That is a duty of care. The Dutch government itself has declared that climate change is a major problem already this sentence. So they have said it is very dangerous. That was important. And they, in all the eight years that we were in court, they have never said that that was not correct. So they have admitted climate change is a major problem with enormous risks this century. And then on top of that, they had already signed numerous documents in which they said uh, we have to uh, decrease the emissions between 25 and 40 percent. So there was also a so-called standard of care. So there was this duty and there was a standard that they had admitted and that 200 countries in the world had admitted. So then as a judge, if you know there is a duty of care and there's also a standard, then you can say, well, if it's so dangerous that it will cost lives and so on and so on, then I can ask as a judge from the government to do what's necessary to protect the citizens. If it would not have been so dangerous, it would not be possible. And if there would not have been this commitment amongst 200 countries and a standard of care, it would also have been very, very difficult. But because all this was in place, this was something that we could do. But afterwards, it sounds very simple, but to, to correctly draft this in a court case is very difficult. Mm -hmm. This was a really big deal. So there's a responsibility and then there's this quantification of that responsibility into numbers that a court can say, you got to do this much. Michael Gerard, director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, called the ruling, quote, the strongest decision ever issued by any court in the world on climate change and the only one that has actually ordered reductions in greenhouse gas emissions based on constitutional grounds, end quote. What effects are you seeing? Well, at the time that we won for the first time at the, the first court was in 2015. And then it was indeed the very first time that a court in the world would say there is an obligation to protect your citizens. And somehow that never had been done by before. But the court rules and, and they, they wrote a verdict in two languages, both in Dutch and in English, which is not normal in the Netherlands. And because it was in English, it was around the world within half an hour after it had been issued. And so many people got inspired by it, but also had suddenly the idea, yes, this is what we still can do. Because a lot of people had already given up or were depressed or had been working on climate for 30 years. And now suddenly they thought, this is a new tool. And it's really remarkable to see within a few years how many court cases all over the world sparked off and were inspired by our case and now you also have cases that have a goal in 2030 our goal was in 2020 of course because we started already in 2012 mm -hmm. even before Paris so young people in France and Germany won their court cases for 2030 based on what we had done so it was in some extent uh, copy and paste but then for 2030 
So we are really very happy and we had never expected anything like this. You're absolutely not focused on the rest of the world. We were very focused on let's try to win this case. And then suddenly it opens up and it's all over the place. It's really special. Coming up, Marianne didn't just change the legal landscape for climate cases. She also helped accelerate the solar market in the Netherlands. I heard that there were more than 30,000 people that had wanted solar panels but were too late. And I thought, what if I join all these people and I jointly buy them, in this case in, in China, can we get an enormous discount? That's up next. The London School of Economics estimates that as of last year, there were 73 different framework cases challenging the climate responses of governments around the world. Many other lawsuits target fossil fuel companies for knowingly selling a product that provides needed energy and harms people and the planet. I asked Marianne why she chose to sue governments, not corporations. Well, we had been thinking about that in 2012, and we thought, who is the one really responsible for protecting its citizens? Who is the one who is party at the climate change uh, convention? Um, and that's not companies, that's that's states. So we thought that the government of, of countries like the Netherlands is the real party that demand that has said climate change is a problem and we want to change that. They have signed all those uh, different documents, agreements, etc., etc., framework, convention, blah, blah, blah. So if a government wants a company to change or says a company is not doing the right thing, a country can make a law to say you are not allowed to sell oil and gas anymore. So we think that the government is the first actor that should change. And then on top of that, I'm, of course, uh, pleasantly surprised that there were also court cases against Shell and others that have been won, so that the big companies are also forced to make a change. But in 2012, when nobody believed a court case like this could be win anyways, we thought that the best actor to target was the government, because that's the one who has signed the Climate Change Convention and the Paris Agreement and so on and so on. And that's also the actor that should protect its citizens. One of Urgenda's projects is the Climate Litigation Network. What are you doing to support citizen suits against governments in other countries? Yeah, we have set up this Climate Litigation Network uh, after we won uh, because we got so many questions from uh, small groups, particularly, and citizens all around the world that said, we also want to start a climate case, but how do we do this? Uh, and it's it's uh, special to see that it's not the big NGOs that started to follow us first. It were the smaller groups. So there was, for example, in Ireland, uh, a small group that wanted to do this, they did not even have a website. So we helped them with a website and we helped them to explain how you set up a campaign and how you could do this court case. And we went back and forth and helped them with a lot of uh, different um, parts of setting up such a campaign and a court case. And one of my colleagues went to all the court cases in Ireland and they also won up to the Supreme Court. And we are now helping a court case of people who live on an island close to Australia. So it's an Australian court case. And we help a very a small NGO in Italy that also became big through their court case. Not big in the sense with a lot of people, but they are now a well-known name. And before they started the court case, they were hardly known. So you see that the small ones dare to try something that seems to be impossible and that 
could be the end of their uh, NGO uh, because often in other countries, if you lose, you have to pay the cost of the lawyers and then you're uh, mm. bankrupt. <laughs> mm. So uh, it's it's uh, you have to have courage to do that. And a lot of big NGOs uh, think it's yeah more problematic because if they would have to pay millions, then they would maybe have a serious problem of survival. Sure. And one example of sort of those small actors uh, having a big impact is law students in Vanuatu have convinced the United Nations to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice based in The Hague. That plea was supported by 120 industrialized countries, including Britain, France and Germany. I was kind of surprised to to see that. What do you think of that effort to clarify the legal obligations of rich countries for their high emissions? I think that's very much necessary because that has been a, a quarrel between, say, poor and rich countries since the very beginning of the climate change uh, convention because the smaller and the poorer countries said we have hardly caused any of the problem uh, and we now face as the first ones the problems because if you live on an island stage, you if it's two degrees warmer, you have to leave. You can't stay there. So 1.5 was really the maximum for them. They have very much campaigned in Paris for that in 2015 too. Uh, but they see that a lot of richer countries who are the largest emitters talk a lot. And they have nice words, but they don't act. And they also promised very often to poor countries, we will give you money but they often didn't do what they promised. So I think uh, the fact that the rich countries can protect themselves the best, but uh, they have caused most of the problem, um, also gives an, a moral obligation to help the poor countries who will face the problems as the first and who also cannot do much about the problem. Um, and it's after more than 30 years of uh, declarations and talks, it's clear that it won't happen that way, so maybe then through a judge like we did, uh, you can force the richer countries to do what actually they should have done already, of course. It's actually something, it's a poor thing that it's needed to do such a court case, that we don't simply use our brains and help those countries and, and do what we, I think, should morally do. Sure. In fact, just to recently, as we're recording this, President Biden pledged a billion dollars toward the Green Climate Fund, which uh, the U.S. hasn't given any money to for the last seven years. And that's still short of the three billion, I think, that President Obama pledged about a decade ago. So the U.S. is not closing the gap, but it's not. No, really. and that, that's the same for a lot of other rich countries. So we promise a lot. And I can imagine that those poor countries are fed up, like the young people who are also fed up with the older people who promise, 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 but don't deliver. Hmm. Yeah. Before your organization took the lead on suing the Dutch government, you focused more on an entrepreneurial approach. You have both business and law degrees. Tell us about the story of the 50,000 solar panels from China and working around banks who wouldn't give you a loan. Yeah, that was around 2010. I was looking around here in the Netherlands and I saw hardly any solar panels. And we did have a subsidy scheme, but that was not very well developed. So that was a, a scheme that said first come, first serve. And clever entrepreneurs put 100 students in a room and when the subsidy scheme would open up, within five minutes it would be all sold out. And if you, as, as a citizen, the next morning thought, I want 10 solar panels, it was already gone. Uh, and I heard that there were more than 30,000 people that had wanted 
solar panels, but we're too late. And I thought, what if I join all these people and I jointly buy them, in this case in, in China, um, can we get an enormous discount? So I asked people that I knew in China, can you do the uh, uh, talks for me in Chinese because I don't speak the language and how many do I need to buy? Hundred thousand, a million, I had no clue. So they came back after a few months and they said, we have it all settled. If you buy 50,000 solar panels and inverters, we can bring the price down with one third compared to the prices now on the market. Uh, and then I spoke with newspapers in the Netherlands because I was in a, a, a kind of a contest on the most sustainable person of the Netherlands. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm busy with the solar panels. And they put it on the front page. And then suddenly we got thousands of phone calls of all kinds of people that said, I want solar panels. I want solar panels. Uh, so within a month, we had collected enough people to buy 50,000 solar panels, which at that time was 10 megawatts with everything that you need to put it on the roof and to install it. But normally, if you buy something in China, you have to pay immediately. Then it goes on a boat for five weeks. And then six weeks later, mm -hmm. you give mm -hmm. it to your client and then they pay you. So you need for six weeks a bank that gives you a loan. And no bank in the Netherlands wanted to give me a loan, even though I had sold it already and those people had paid upfront 20%. So I had a completely new bank account with 5 million euros and they didn't want to give me the loan. So I went to China and asked them, really, I have already sold it, but I can't get the loan. And then the people in China decided to help me. And they said, okay, you don't have to pay it immediately. You pay it when the... Uh, solar panels are in Europe and we give you a little bit of discount additionally and then you do your thing because we think this is a new business model because we see everywhere that the subsidy sch schemes go down and maybe this joint buying is a new way of doing it and we want to uh, support you. Then we sent an email to all those thousands of people and said yeah we made it and you can get a discount if you pay me now instead of over five weeks. And then all people paid. So I had 20 million in a new bank account and I could pay everybody in China. I didn't need any bank for that. No loan, no subsidy. And that in the Netherlands really created uh, enormous uh, opening up of the market. And all kinds of other people then thought, oh, joint buying, that's a nice idea. And they started all kinds of joint buying initiatives. So since then, you can see in the Netherlands, there's a... Uh, exponential curve on solar panels but at that time in 2010 that was really new and it was also a big news in the netherlands very clever cut out the bank yeah you don't don't get that letter of credit that usually bridges that financing from uh, manufacturer to delivery uh, so you're thinking about business and law you have degrees in both when do you opt for pulling the levers of the legal system versus working more business oriented market approaches well, when we started with Urgenda around 2007, I started with a lot of these type of projects. I also imported the first electric vehicles that were made in series and sold them to big cities. Uh, and we started off energy corporations, so say community-oriented energy companies. But after five years, I looked around and I thought, are we moving quickly enough? And my conclusion was, no, if the government is not going to help with this acceleration, we're not going to make it. So the first five years of agenda, I tried to avoid government because 
I don't really like the way they work and they're not very quick and so on. So I really thought <laughs> I can do it without. But after five years, I thought, no, they need to put certain laws in place. They need to give sort certain subsidies. They have to forbid certain things and so on and so on. So that was how the court case came into my mind. I read a book from someone on our think tank, uh, Revolution Justified, that analyzed governments won't do it. This, the, the problem is enormous. So the only thing left, which is still democratic, is asking the judges to force the government to do what they themselves have declared is necessary. And that was what I then thought, well, let's try and see if we can get the government on board in this acceleration that we need so much. Well, you've had quite an impact affecting legal cases around the world, changing the solar market in the Netherlands. You've been recognized for your work with the Goldman Environmental Prize. What's your next goal? What's your next ambition? Well, the past few years, we have been working also more on biodiversity because what we saw here in the Netherlands was that the energy transition was worked on with so much kind of fierceness that it was sometimes against biodiversity. People wanted to put wind turbines and solar panels everywhere. And we made a book, How the Netherlands Could Get 100% Sustainable Energy Within 10 Years, in a way that it was still acceptable for the people. Um, and then we also thought we need to do more on the green side. So the past few years, we had a project that was called More Trees Now. There's a lot of places where you have trees underneath a big tree that can't grow bigger, or you have trees in the park that will be mowed by the owner or along the, the rail tracks where you don't want trees and so on. And we collected with by now 15,000 volunteers all those trees that were in places where they were not allowed. And by now it's 1.5 million in a few years' time. And we give them to people who want trees. And that's 500,000 trees for farmers that wanted them along uh, their land, uh, 500,000 trees for all kinds of projects wanting to start a new wood or whatever, and 500,000 for citizens that just wanted a few trees in their garden. And most of the trees have survived, and we are now after the official governmental body for forests. We are now the number two in the country of planting trees. So we have grown enormously in three years, and that generates a lot of uh, active citizens that really want to do something, and it gives people hope that they still have a possibility to do something. And we did the same for farmers. In the Netherlands, a lot of farmers use one type of grass, which is not very good for biodiversity. And they also use it, um, uh, they use fertilizer on it and a lot of things that are not very good. And you rather have so-called herb-rich grass, but that's much more uh, expensive. So we organized a fundraising and we said to citizens, please give us money that we can buy this grass seed for farmers for a price that is lower than this uh, grass that we don't want. And then we got funds from all over the place and we have now uh, realized 4,000 hectares of herb-rich grass for those farmers. And they see that it might be a bit uh, more expensive to buy it, but because you don't need fertilizer on it and you don't put pesticides on it, the costs are not higher. So in the end, they have now found out that this is better for the cows, better for the milk, and actually not worse for themselves. So you see that they go on with it even after uh, we have stopped giving them this enormous discount of 50%. So we try to find solutions along the way 
both for biodiversity and for climate. And I think both things need to be done. Thank you so much for coming on Climate One. Thank you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about successfully challenging government and corporate power with activists Nayeli Kobo and Marianne Manesma. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard and complicated and depressing and exciting, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also go to our new website and create a playlist. Any topic you're interested in, art, energy, policy, technology, you can do it right there on our website, climateone.org. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Shada is our development manager. Our communications manager is Ben Testani. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.